So this is our sixth episode. And I think at this point, like it, it, it feels like we have a show, like we keep on putting out episodes. There are some people who continue to listen to the episodes. We are developing, I think a little bit of an audience. It seems like we have about 30 or 40 of you guys who've been listening regularly. Does that seem right to you? Uh, yeah, I think so. 40 is not in, uh, an insignificant number of people. No. What would be an insignificant number? I think like below... Like four. Four, it's just us. Yeah. It's just... Yeah. <laughs> <you know. laughs> That's truly insignificant. Yeah. <laughs> Seven is rather insignificant. 20 starts to seem rather significant. But here's the thing. I, I feel like I'm not on social media. I don't understand what it means to be like... <laughs> I, <laughs> but I'm starting to get a taste of it here and I'm starting to get a little bit, uh, goal oriented in terms of like wanting people to listen to the show and having more sort of enthusiasm generated behind what we do here. So I think my goal is by 2020, by 2021 <laughs> to have this show be more popular than the Flat Earth podcast. Oh, okay. Which is a real thing, which is way more popular than our podcast. Have you listened podcast. Uh, to the Flat Earth podcast? I Yeah, well, I listened to the beginning. Well, I, I'd used it as a teaching example oh. in my Anthropocene class about a year ago. Was it good? And uh, Oh, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> really smart stuff. It's great. We should get those guys on the show. <laughs> that would be a get. Uh, I, would, I would love to do that. Um, actually, I don't think I they would. would probably come on. The I show. mean, the whole flat earth thing is a little They're conspiracy, it's a little people. exhausted. I mean, there's already a Netflix documentary. Uh, I think the joke is kind of over. I would still, I would still interview them, I guess. I don't know. Maybe th- I think they would be in- interviewing us probably. Oh, what would you they know, have? It's th- probably how that I, would get, I can't imagine they'd be particularly They would be like, interested. prove that the earth isn't flat. And we'd I be like, there's gravity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the 540 mostly anonymous American billionaires. How many have we done so far? 10? Uh, 10. 11 and 12 today. So at this rate, we'll be done in like 2027? Um, I don't know. You know, we're thinking about having some guests on in the future uh, to do a, a few. So we might get three per episode. So that might cut us down to 2026. Um, we'll see. Or maybe the p- guests will be different episodes that aren't even a part of our census, which will put well, that, us back to 2032. Yeah, that would make it longer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, billionaires in the news? Yeah, let's do it. Billionaires. Okay, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna be honest with you, Chad. I did not really read very much about this billionaires in the news segment. Okay, so uh, we're talking about uh, Jeff Bezos or Bezos. Do you say Bezos or Bezos? I have heard. I think it's Bezos. I've heard people say Bezos, uh, which is a lot funnier to me. As as 
as people doing this, we have to know how to pronounce his name, right? Uh, I don't think so. I like the ambiguity. We just let's, let's leave it hang out there. Um, I'm I'm googling this shit right now. Well, I mean, Jeff Bezos. Can we just <laughs> decide how we want to pronounce? Hold on it? a second. Hold on a second. He's. I found a thing where he says his own name. Bezos. Okay. Right. Whatever. Uh, so we're talking about Jeff Bezos today. <laughs> uh, he was in the news. There's a New York Times article out, uh, and uh, it, it's about uh, him unveiling his space company's um, uh, vision for space and a moon lander. Um, okay, so before you say anything else, I just want to say that like unbeknownst to all you listeners out there, Chad and I have been like working on this podcast for a year trying to get to the point where we had an idea. And so we were recording a lot and we had a lot of uh, recorded conversations. And and sometime a year ago, you already made uh, – I mean I know other people out there in the world have sort of made this argument about billionaires and space uh, adventuring. Seasteading. But like you had – yeah, right. The sea setting yeah. thing. That's right. Yeah. Um, but like you've been onto this, right? I just wanted to give you credit for having thought um, this. Yeah, issue. I don't I don't think I really deserve any credit uh, because I don't think it's that unusual of an argument to make. Um, but uh, I mean, uh, many people have observed uh, the fact that there are a lot of billionaires who seem to be working on escape plans, uh, whether it is space colonization or sea colonization uh, or, uh, 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 you know, even people like Vinod Koshla, who we talked about earlier, just sort of um, laying claim to uh, public land uh, and calling it his own and putting up a gate and blocking people out. Right? Like there, I, I, There's a lot of uh, um, uh, energy being put into projects that uh, from, you know, they don't talk about them as escape plans, but from uh, uh, the perspective of, of, I think, most people, right? Like it, 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 it looks, you know, uh, and Richard Branson's doing this too, I guess. It looks like a kind of uh, uh, this, uh, you know, Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson working on their space programs. You have Peter Thiel, uh, who, who is maybe no longer affiliated with uh, all of these libertarians who want to create these utopian states on the sea. Um, you know, there's like, there's a lot of stuff going on uh, around uh, this idea, uh, and it was part of our original conversation uh, about doing this show uh, that we were really interested in billionaires, uh, 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 the fantasies that billionaires have and the way that they talk about them. I think it might be interesting to sort of like unpack their argument or their ideology behind wanting to, rather than obviously, you know, spending money to cure cancer or feed people or make sure that uh, water is going to be evenly distributed throughout the globe over the next hundred years. They're just planning evacuation. Right. Yeah. And And they don't, they don't talk about it in those terms, of course. Right. But so they talk about it in the terms of like people who don't think that going and relocating the human population in outer space are somehow missing the point are somehow limited in their imagination about what's possible for the human species. You know, what's, you know, it's like the idea is that, I mean, our whole show title, Zero Sum Empire, I feel like for them is 
categorically missing the point. They don't view the world or they argue, this argument goes, it's not a zero-sum game. There are infinite resources out there. So let's go grab them. Yeah. Uh, that's I mean, that's actually exactly what Bezos said. Uh, he did this big like video launch release and this kind of Steve Jobs doing an extended TED talk on stage where he introduces products. And his entire rationale for why he wants to go to space is uh, the idea was that we're running out of uh, energy. Um, and, and while there is certainly uh, a lot to be concerned about in, uh, in energy production, uh, he spins out this yarn that uh, over the course of the 20th century, uh, uh, human energy use globally has gone up pretty regularly at 3% a year. Uh, and he also extrapolates like a, a continuous population increase for the next couple of centuries. So like if the population uh, increases as it was over the course of the 20th century and our energy use increases at the rate that it was over the course of the 20th century, uh, then to power the planet and, and uh, give all of the people the energy that they need um, uh, in a couple of hundred years, we would have to cover the entire planet it with solar panels uh, to collect that energy, right? Which is like, it's just a nuts calculation that doesn't make any sense. But I mean, for one, the population is already leveling out. Two, uh, agricultural production would not be able to keep up with the population that large. And so there would be natural limits to that sort of growth. Uh, 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 but like, so it doesn't make any sense, uh, like the rationale for why he wants to uh, or, or uh, well, I didn't even get to the to why he wants to go to space. He wants to go to space to mine resources, right? Like the the idea is we're running out of energy, so we have to go to the moon and mine moon oil or something to uh, to supply our energy needs. He doesn't. That's he's what. That's just your. No, own, no, 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 no. That's no that's the rationale that he gives in the video. He thinks there's moon oil. Uh, no, not oil, but uh, but uh, we have. <laughs> you know, it, if we want, if we want to replenish the uh, or or produce the energy that we need, uh, we're no longer going to be able to get it from Earth. We have to get it from extraterrestrial sources. Right. Okay. Uh, I don't know what that yeah. is. One of the things that he talks about is uh, using moon water, moon ice, to make rocket fuel. Um, which is uh, uh, pretty cool um, because, as you know, we already make all of our rocket fuel out of water. That's how it's done, I think. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, like, so moon ice is just going to be turbo ice. It's just ice. Uh, I mean, he, they're, they're, the entire thing is a fantasy. There's no real technology that he has invented. Uh, he has a bunch of cardboard mock-ups. Uh, and he does have rocket ships, uh, you know, just like Elon Musk. Uh, you know, there there are uh, rocket ships. But the only thing that he talks about is how these rocket ships are completely unable to contribute in any meaningful way to the to the uh, addressing the problems that he's outlining. And so he just sort of goes off in this <laughs> fantasy about these, uh, uh, you know, I mean, he's talking about a trillion human beings in space that's 1,000 billion human beings in space colonies. Uh, uh, you know, like, I mean, it's a, it's a science fiction fantasy. It doesn't make any any sort of sense at all in, in, in like, real world terms. And so, like, the conclusion that you have to come to is either that the, the world's richest man is a completely unhinged maniac uh, who <laughs> has no grip on reality or he's doing something else. Right. And, and I think that that's the answer that he's it's a it's an exercise in personal branding. He wants to call a personality like Elon Musk and he doesn't really have one yet. 
uh, in the same way. Uh, and, and the other thing is uh, private public partnerships, uh, you know, Trump uh, or Pence through Trump uh, has announced that we, we set a deadline to put more people on the moon by 2024 for some reason. And uh, uh, and so he Bezos is making the case that he's the right guy to do it and not Elon Musk or somebody else. Um, so okay. Like that's part of it. Did um did we talk about what it is that is uh, precipitating this this news segment? What happened again? He just did a he did, did he a talk. At the I don't I don't I don't have any idea. I mean, he unveiled literally a, a cardboard mock up of the <laughs> like the payload <laughs> delivery system uh, uh, for landing on the moon. Like I I have no idea what the actual accomplishment was. It was just an unveiling. Of his vision. That's what the headline of the article says. <laughs> like he didn't unveil okay. any technology. He unveiled a vision and a mock-up of a moonlander, <laughs> like a pretend moonlander that uh, that he wants to make. Right. Like I, so. So like the, I mean, people have been ripping him apart online um, because this whole thing is so stupid. But like the the one. I, you know, you brought up at the beginning how like this idea of, uh, you know, billionaires creating sort of escape plans uh, or, uh, you know, uh, kind of survival plans in the, the era of climate change uh, and in the era of uh, great wealth inequality uh, is something that was like generative of the idea for this show. And uh, like and I, and I want to just sort of like plant a flag and say that a, a recurring topic is going to be like reading billionaires as doomsday preppers, right? And we've talked about it a little bit, right? Like the sort of logic of the hedge, right? Like that when we were talking about, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, Dalio and stuff, uh, we were talking about this a little bit. But like the very, very funny thing to me and and I, like, it, you know, Bez Bezos's politics are a little bit unclear. But one of the things that we know about the Silicon Valley people and the tech people in general is that there's a strong libertarian streak that runs through all of them. And, and, and like part, you know, like there there is the doomsday prepper. There is the escape hatch angle uh, for talking about why they're doing this. But I think like an, another part and maybe even a part that like speaks more directly to what their particular fantasies are is that they're create they they have they have this idea that they want to create these libertarian utopias so that they can have societies that work in the way that they think societies are supposed to work so like if you've ever mm -hmm. noticed I don't know if you've ever talked to a libertarian um uh, I don't recommend it but like if you do one of the things that you notice right away is that anytime they start to explain what they believe they immediately go to these elaborate hypothetical scenarios. So it's like um, they're 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 very abstract, uh, and they they talk about people and communities in these like weird idealized terms. So it'll be like, you know, uh, imagine you are a a person who makes pretzels and. You you want to maximize your utility and happiness and you make these pretzels and you sell them to consumers and these consumers also want to maximize their utility and happiness. And uh, and so like blah, blah, you know, like that, that they never they never talk about sort of real people in real situations who are experiencing uh, deprivation of uh, basic necessities or anything like that. It's always in this like really abstract sort of way. And I and like. And I think that, that that resonates weirdly with the fact that they want to do this stuff like go to space and seasteading because I, I think that it, some part of them understands that 
their idea of how the world should work works best as a fantasy and not as a reality. And so they have these fantasy mm. spaces that they kind of create in their own minds. Like they're basically model train guys, I think. Like that, you know, like the, the, they create these little worlds and and Bezos has this fantasy space colony and Peter Thiel has this fantasy, you know, sea colony. And they go out there and they uh, uh, create it in the, the sort of image of their own ideology and it like it works perfectly. But they but there's some part of them that knows that if they actually did it, it wouldn't work and it would all fall apart immediately. Right. And so they have to like choose these, you know, kind of way out there um, uh, uh, locales for uh, that would take like, you know, these leaps and bounds in technology that we don't currently have uh, to accomplish. And so that way they can hold on to their fantasy that if they were just a little bit different my libertarian fantasy would come true uh but like they they never have to test that they never have to reality test that fantasy um and i think that i think there's like something going on with that that we can maybe talk about more in in the future All right, Chad, who, who are you talking I'm about? I'm talking today? about Bernard Saul II. Um, and uh, I don't have much to say about him. Uh, I don't. Well, let me just say yeah. this. Like, you you picked him from the roulette wheel last yes. episode. And I kind of still feel like I've never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like, I mean, his name just doesn't. You sent me a text message about him, seriously, like as you were communicating to me in pre-production. And I, I didn't recognize this. I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> well, the, the crazy thing is uh, his family's been around for a really long time. I, it's like as close to old money as we get in the United States. Uh, he his. I guess they became rich in the 1850s. Uh, his great-great-grandfather maybe worked on uh, the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and ever since then, they've had wow. real estate business in D.C. Um, so they're D.C. people. Yes. Uh, D.C., Virginia mostly, uh, although they have some real estate holdings you know, in different states all across the U.S., but it's m- mainly focused in, in D.C., um, he, you know, uh, so let me give you the quick rundown. Like I said, uh, you know, you can go to this guy's Wikipedia. You can try to look him up online. You're not going to find much. Uh, there is a Forbes profile of him. Uh, he is 87 years old. Uh, he's worth $3.7 billion. Um, he inherited a property management business, uh, B.F. Saul Company, from his grandfather, uh, who's also named B.F. Saul. Uh, he was B.F. Saul Jr., and his father was B.F. Saul. B.F. Saul. His father was B.F. Saul Jr. <laughs> and then uh, the guy I'm talking about. Uh, no, no, sorry. Uh, so the original B.F. Saul had a son, B.F. Saul Jr. And that's the grandfather of B.F. Saul II. I can't contain myself because our two segments today could not be like more perfectly aligned at the end. Oh, okay. But continue. I'm excited to find out how. Uh, so like... There are, I think, now four B.F. Sauls. The third one is the second, and his son, B.F. Saul III, is also a rich guy in D.C. Um, So uh, they mainly own a bunch of apartment buildings and strip malls or, or 
you know, commercial real estate space uh, across the U.S. and uh, uh, but like I said, mainly in D.C. and Virginia. Um, uh, they his his great great grand John Hennessy Saul, I think his great great grandfather uh, is the the sort of original. Um, a guy who made a fortune and uh, he came from Ireland. Uh, he was a horticulturalist, uh, kind of famous. Um, and uh, there's a really great book on archive.org called um, the, the Descriptive Catalog of Fruits, uh, which was a catalog for his uh, seed business. And uh, that's kind of cool. It is cool. It, is, it has these really beautiful illustrations um, and you can look it up on uh, archive.org. We'll put a link to it um, in case you want to see it. Uh, but after that, it's pretty boring. It's just uh, real estate. So he has a couple of things that people might have heard of uh, the Kennedy Warren apartment building and the Hay Adams Hotel in Washington, D.C. Like a lot of D.C. properties have kind of like, you know, you know, uh, uh, storied histories because famous people stayed there. These two uh, do to some degree. So these are like high end historic properties that have a couple politicians of politicians and but celebrities that's not there. That stayed there. And whatever. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, LBJ stayed there when he was a congressman, I, I guess, in the apartment building. Um, but like not really that interesting. And I didn't really dig into that too much. Uh, there are much more famous hotels and apartment buildings in Washington, D.C. Um, so uh, the uh, uh, so B.F. Saul II, the subject of our census entry, uh, he uh, uh, um, really expanded the business. Um, one of the things that he did was he, he started the Chevy Chase Federal Savings Bank, and he sold that to Capital One for half a billion dollars a few years ago. Uh, so that was a big deal. Otherwise, there's there's just not a lot of information on him. And there's a couple of like funny, uh, uh, you know, instances that that really illustrate how absent from the public eye this family has been for um, 170 years now. Right? Um, uh, there's a Washington Post article about his son, uh, B.F. Saul III. Uh, who he started his own real estate firm in DC in 2012. So, wait, is he born uh, in like the 70s or something? Yeah. So, I guess the article said when he was 50, uh, that was 2012. So, yeah, 1960 ish. Uh, uh, he, uh, he was born. Um, that's the third. That's the, that's the son. Um, and uh, the, the, this is the only interview I can find with either of them. Uh, and the interview itself does not give much in, insight into who they are. Uh, so I wanted to quote from the article to give you a sense of like how they interact with the press. So uh, you ready for uh, yeah, a quote on from the, the Washington Post? Uh, B. Francis Saul III, who is descended from a man who began buying and selling local real estate in 1892, has resigned as president of Saul Centers, the Bethesda-based firm that owns dozens of local shopping centers, according to a company regulatory filing Tuesday. In a brief interview, Saul, 50, said he would start his own real estate company after 23 years with Saul Centers. Quote, I have been thinking about this over the years, he said. I am going to acquire and develop commercial properties. End quote. That's all they got. <laughs> what? I mean, that is yeah. like many times. Where, like, I think about this. 
in the context of like uh, athletes, like sports interviews at the end of games, you know, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, even right. like, yeah, like you just many times more and... vague than that. <laughs> yeah. So that's not even the half of it. Um, uh, so that's all the sun gives them. But there is one other Washington Post article from 2016 uh, that does actually note the rarity and brevity of the Saul family's statements to the press. To the press, uh, uh, the uh, there's uh, the the article quotes a single line from the only interview Bernard Saul II has ever given. Quote. I have never given a personal interview, end quote. Uh, <laughs> he told he said that to the Washington Post in 1983. And uh, that's that's the extent. This is amazing. Yeah, he's incredibly anonymous. I, I have one more uh, quote that I really enjoyed. And this comes from the Forbes profile of uh, Forbes, in case you don't know, does profiles of all the U- all the billionaires in the U.S. Um and there's, they all have a quote at the bottom of their profile, and it's like an inspirational quote, or it's something that, that encapsulates their philosophy of business, uh, or you know, uh, praises entrepreneurism or whatever. Uh, uh, so uh, Bernard Saul II's quote is, "If you forgot about me, I'd be grateful." <laughs> and uh, and they don't say where it came from. Uh, I don't know where they got that quote. Um, I assume it's from the 1983 interview, uh, I, but uh, it's it's unclear. Forbes gives them a philanthropy score of one. And uh, that's not like, it's not like, yeah, number one. Uh, number uh, one means, one is the lowest. <laughs> one one Out means of what? there is no record of any sort of philanthropic activity. Uh, however, he is extremely Catholic. Uh, and... It's not clear why, but in 1991, the, the one other fact I could find about his personal life is the Pope gave him some sort of medal in 1991. I don't know why. I, I uh, Apparently because he gives money to Catholic causes, but maybe anonymously. I, it, I don't know. Um, so the, you know, I don't really have too much to say about Bernard Saul II himself, um, but it, it does offer us an opportunity to talk about some uh, another kind of investment vehicle that we haven't discussed so far that I think is kind of interesting. Okay. Um, What's it, this? It, this is the first uh, time I've it's heard called of it. a, It's called a REIT. A REIT. Uh, an R-E-I-T. It stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. Uh, okay. And the biggest part of the business, Saul Centers, uh, the one that owns all of the, the shopping malls and things like that, um, is uh, a REIT. Uh, and REITs are uh, just sort of vehicles for people to invest in income-producing real estate. Uh, so uh, like a strip mall... Uh, collects rents from the people who have storefronts there, right? And the rent is income and people can invest in a REIT that holds a lot of commercial real estate and uh, and make money from the income that the REIT takes in. So um, as far as REITs go, uh, the uh, Saul Centers is not particularly controversial uh, because it's a publicly traded company and has to file with the F- SEC and, uh, you know, like uh, and, and really just deals in kind of uh, commercial retail space. I guess they have some apartment buildings and, and things like that, but 
Um, there are a lot of other kinds of REITs and there, and there are a lot of really bad ones. Can you break down REITs? I'm like listening and still. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to do it. Uh, I like the, I think the place where it comes into public consciousness is, is because of Trump, uh, uh, in the Trump era, we've all sort of become aware of the link between real estate investment and money laundering. And the way they do this is through uh, REITs. Uh, 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 there are non-publicly traded private REITs. Uh, there are offshore REITs. And there are REITs not registered with the SEC. Um, and I just want to emphasize, what I'm going to talk about is not something that Bernard Saul could even possibly be involved in as far as I know, because it's a publicly traded company. Um, uh, but uh, for these other REITs, uh, th- they are uh, often the, the global oligarchy's go-to resource for laundering money uh, from um, oil uh, and other natural resources that uh, were secured uh, under questionable circumstances. I see. Um so here's how it here's how it works. Like here's how a money laundering REIT would work. Uh, you get one or several oligarchs to put a bunch of money, uh, likely through a shell company, into an offshore REIT, uh, which does the work of laundering the money. So like the REIT will buy up a bunch of apartment buildings or houses and then rent those out. Uh, however, they could also just like sit on the property and and do nothing with it or resell it later on at a loss even. Um, so the rental money that's coming in uh, is a legitimate source of money, which the oligarch can collect after REIT managers take their cut. So like you could have uh, like a Russian or Saudi billionaire give a bunch of money to a REIT based in Cyprus, and then that buys up a bunch of apartment buildings in like New York or California or Florida uh, they're usually in cities uh, so that they can fill apartment buildings. And, I don't want to jump the gun, but is this what's yeah. driving up real estate prices in major cities? Oh, my God. I can't believe you guessed that. Yes, it is. <laughs> that is exactly the point that I wanted to make. Um, uh, people, uh, you know, in a couple of articles, and again, we'll link to these uh, in the, the show description, um, but they make the argument that the skyrocketing uh, rents in uh, urban areas are often due to not only to like money laundering oligarchs, but also just to the fa- just because of the fact that rents have been made into investment vehicles, right? Um, uh, which is messed up. Um, so in the money laundering case, you have like a Cyprus-based REIT funded by some Saudi billionaire, uh, and then the REIT collects rent that appears to be legitimate income. They take 20% of it. The rest goes back to the billionaire or the, you know, Saudi prince or whoever uh, in an offshore bank account in like the Bahamas or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, like, the, and, and I think this is what happened in in, in Panama, you know, what what's Trump's uh, 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 Trump Tower Panama City or something? Um that they will purchase apartment units and then not even bother to rent them out. Uh, or they will get like false names to rent them out and they'll just pay rent to themselves. So like the, the whole a whole building can just be empty and only exist as a pass through for like a money laundering machine. Hmm. Right. Like you pay rent in. And then you collect rent out uh, and the the real estate investment 
uh, trust is taking 20% of that. And, uh, you know, like, and, but like nobody's living in the building. Wow. Um, That's, that's pretty crazy. It is. It's very weird. Um, and so that's, you know, like I, I'm sure, you know, real estate investing is huge and I'm sure it's going to come up again in the future. But like before we are too easy on Bernard Saul and and REITs in general, uh, I just want to emphasize there's no such thing as a good REIT, even if it's not engaged in money laundering and criminal activity, because what REITs do is that they turn rent extraction into an investment vehicle for wealthy people. Uh, hmm. Like they 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 create another layer of incentive to squeeze people uh, for higher rents, which, as you pointed out, drives rents higher and higher uh, as more management structure, like more middlemen are inserted between renters and landowners. Right. Um, Like landowner, like landlords suck enough whenever it's just a person who won't fix your toilet and, you know, raises the rent and, 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 uh, and, and that kind of thing. But when it comes to REITs, like renters are dealing with a management company that's hired by a REIT that itself is working on behalf of investors in the REIT, uh, who like never, you know, interact with or see the property or the community at all. And all of those people need to get paid. Right. So you have to extract more and more, uh, 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 rent as, uh, more and more people get on the payroll. God. And, okay. And so like when they introduce these levels of abstraction where like a REIT could own hundreds of apartment buildings all across the U S in different countries, whatever. Um, and they're completely disconnected from the communities, uh, from which they're extracting their rents. Like, you know, it's like, a bill, you know, just like imagine a billionaire studying a graph of returns on his REIT investments. Like, and <laughs> like you cannot expect that person to translate that information into the real effects of poverty, homelessness, lack of access to affordable housing uh, that live downstream from the decisions that are being made in the interest of you know increasing alpha uh, for the REIT investors. So one of the things uh, that I'm sure you'll be happy to know is that the recent Republican tax bill uh, that uh, uh, that went through in, in uh, tw- uh, was it 2017? I, I can't even keep my dates straight anymore. I don't know what year it is. Um, uh, one of the, the central parts of the new tax bill is a 20 percent reduction in uh, pass through income, uh, which includes REITs. Uh, so. Uh, the the new Republican tax bill significantly lowers the tax burden uh, for REITs. on REITs on REITs. So this is a oh my god, and will increase their uh, the the frequency with which they're used as investment vehicles. So uh, I guess we can expect rents in cities to go even higher. So who are you talking about today? I am talking about Riley Bechtel. Riley Bechtel is the heir to the Bechtel Corporation fortune. And if you haven't ever heard of Bechtel or can't place the name at this moment, Bechtel is the largest construction company in the United States. It is a a company that is roughly 100 plus years old. It began 
the the genesis of the Bechtel Corporation began in 1898 when the company founder Warren Bechtel, who is Riley's, who we're talking about today, Riley Bechtel, we're talking about his great grandfather, Warren, who took a a team of mules <laughs> out to the Oklahoma Territory and started to construct railroads. You know, this is some, like some serious like there will be blood type shit. You know, yeah. how do you construct a railroad um, he, with mules? Is everywhere you look, I, I, I don't know everywhere, but I saw two or three different sources where they referred to the team of mules. <laughs> I guess they were some legendary. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's very yeah. funny that like the stories foreground that form of labor. Whenever we tend to associate other forms of labor with the construction of railroads, yeah, in the uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, very true, very true. So, in any event, the early years of of building railroads led to later ventures and roads and bridges and hydroelectric oil pipelines and refineries. And Warren died, uh, suspiciously enough, on a business trip to Moscow. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We might want to call those flat earth guys and start to have a conversation. But so this is a family business. It's a privately held business. It is a business that's been run by a series of men and their progeny, their sons. So um, Riley Bechtel is the fourth CEO of the company. Mm -hmm. You start with Warren, then there's Stephen Sr., then there's Stephen Jr., who maybe I'll talk about a little bit, and then and then and then Riley. Oh wow! So the guy I talked about, B.F. Saul II, I think is also. Oh uh, no! I think that his son is the fourth generation. Yeah, but it's the same deal. It's like old money, yeah. American inheritance, uh, and uh, and there's not <clears throat> that much about the family out there. I mean, you get the sense that they have been trained at this level of like uh, old money to never talk to the press. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like part of the code or the culture <laughs> or something. So, all right. Things Bechtel, the Bechtel Corporation has built include the Hoover Dam. Wow. The Trans-Siberian Pipeline, uh, Bay Area Rapid Transit, the BART system in San Francisco, if you've ever taken public transit there. They're responsible for the Big Dig in Boston. I don't know what that one is. They're, you don't know about the Big Dig? No. It, it, well, the Big Dig, I mean, all the Boston people out there are, are up in arms right now because it was such a, like, fiasco, basically. I mean, it was like billions of dollars in cost overruns and, like, way behind schedule and they were sort of like digging up the whole city and it was a complete nightmare hmm. but they finally got it done i think i don't know they basically they got something <laughs> <laughs> um they're currently playing a role overseeing uh, certain aspects of a major infrastructure project in and around london the the crossrail system like a rail and tunnel network connecting the city to the suburbs. So the basic idea is that this is a private company that's been involved in some of the largest infrastructure projects on the planet for a hundred years. 
Uh, Correct. Also, I would be willing to bet money that if you asked 100 people on the street, uh, if they knew what the Bechtel Corporation was, maybe get, you know, two or three affirmative responses. That's absolutely right. I mean, so like, I mean, all the, those are like pretty famous examples of things that they were uh, responsible for it in one way or another. In the 1960s and 70s, they moved into nuclear and Bechtel plays a significant role in the construction of 40% of the nuclear power plants in the United States wow. during those decades, which is like a, to just to, you know, yeah. add some ammunition to your argument or the point you were making. I mean, that's like a huge influence over the landscape and our way of life. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, a lot of it seems, you know, so pipelines, dams and nuclear. So a lot of it is energy focused. They're into whatever they can get their hands on in terms of like mega project engineering. Mm -hmm. And they've grown over time. But according to a fortune.com article, about half of all the sales have come as a result of like state sponsored projects. Okay. So obviously- in order to secure these contracts, you need to have, at the very least, access, but I think probably more to the point, like cozy ties with the the people uh, pulling the purse strings yeah. at the government level. And so they have just worked it, you know, for over 100 years. Yeah. So... Um, before I say anything more about Riley, I just wanted to, just because it seemed fun, I wanted to mention this article that I found that was written by Stephen D. Bechtel Jr., who's Riley's father, the third CEO of the Bechtel Corporation. And this is, uh, the source of this is a journal called Daedalus, published by the MIT Press, issue on managing innovation. And <laughs> the name of the article is, is simply, quite simply, Reflections on Success. <laughs> you know, and like, I just, I mean, I don't even know what I have to say about it. I mean, I'll just read the opening, the introduction. The, asked to comment on what led to my personal success and the success of the Bechtel Group. And what the future might bring for business, I respond by first noting how success is often described. Is he starting with a dictionary definition of success? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Y yeah. yeah. Well, but roughly, yeah. But then he, like, he talks about, you know, as a young child, the exposure I had to my parents' values and conduct and to their friends and associates was extremely valuable. They imprinted me on the fundamentals that have... I mean, I don't even know... Maybe I should just stop at... You can we can link to the article, but just the fact that this guy is out there writing this at the end of his life in this sort of like bastion of deep, deep privilege—the sort of reflections on success by people who, uh, what is he, the third generation of uh, inherited wealth? <laughs> yeah, um, and, and yeah. like you know, his father built the Hoover Dam. It's like, you know, like yeah. I'm not sure it was yeah. the values right. that your parents instilled in you that were really, you know, the the, the major uh, contributor to, to your success here. But yeah, I mean, like, it's it's so, like, 
I mean, it, it would be so wonderful to hear, to see like one of these people write a reflection like that, but, but have it be like, uh, what allowed me to do this? Uh, the military industrial complex and to just sort of like do a structural analysis of, yeah, <laughs> of right. the way yeah. that the uh, economy um, uh, favors uh, the. I think that's my point. Yeah. yeah. Like the reflections on success are, are missing the point. In such a profound way as to be absurd. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. So, okay, uh, that's all like backdrop. Mm-hmm. That's backstory. I'll say a little bit about Riley Bechtel. You know, um, he is also a guy who doesn't seem to give very many interviews. There's not a lot of information out there other than your standard fare for anybody who owns a bunch of money. You know, he'll have a bunch of hits, but there's not a bunch of like mm-hmm. real, easily accessible, meaningful information uh, available about this guy. But so what do you get about him from your basic Wikipedia search? He got a, a JD MBA from Stanford in the late 70s. And started working at Bechtel in 1981. <laughs> <laughs> he became CEO in 1990. I mean, at a certain um, point, right, after a few generations, it's like, you know, I, I mean, he he goes, he gets like the, the obligatory degree, he comes back and sort of learns how things are done, and then just like, you know... Like a rinse and repeat, like just keep it, keep it going, right? Like that. That's that's um, what's yeah. going on. That's exactly the deal. So, you know, things that might be uh, of interest, not much. He's a member of the all male Bohemian Club in in San Francisco. Do you know what the Bohemian Club is all about, Chad? Uh, I don't. Is it related to Bohemian Grove? Uh, that kind of weird ritual. It is. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly related to that. It is that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then I guess I do know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't know anything about it before. But That's but uh, what do you stupid. do? You want to tell? Do you want to tell people what you know? Uh, what I know is I think it's in Washington. Uh, they they have there's a retreat for rich people and uh, political people. Uh, and they go there and they do some goofy rituals and uh, they like worship a giant owl or something. Um, and it's all up. It's California. Oh, is but, it like but Northern California? You're basically right. um, it's just like old redwoods. They, they okay. own a plot of land. I mean, apparently it's just it's just some sort of like goofy, you know, uh, thing uh, that that rich people do. And uh, from what I understand is that there's uh, uh, not really. Um, uh, much to it except for like, you know, people smoking cigars and sort of networking and that sort of thing. But like Alex Jones and the conspiracy people are all over it. Uh, they think both. Oh, really? Bohemian I didn't know Grove that. is like the place where it goes down. This is where the stonecutters meet and decide what's going to happen uh, to the world. Right? <laughs> um, that's interesting. But, but that's not true. Um I mean, I mean, it is a private club that's invite only, that's over 100 years old, that was started with like artists and writers and what have you. And then they started inviting rich people and now it's overrun by rich people and Mm -hmm. you have to get special uh, invites from like multiple members to get in. uh, And then you have to pay a bunch of money to be a part of it. It's like a it's like a very, very lame Burning Man, like a a Burning Man for, for really old people. From what I can tell, it's just a bunch of old, uh, 
exclusively male. It oh, that I, like that probably, I didn't know. Um, yeah. Almost exclusively white, probably. I mean, I don't know who's, it's not a published, but it seems like a lot of old white guys <laughs> who go out into the redwoods and just get drunk <laughs> and just hang out and, you know, network or what have you. Mm-hmm. But so he's a member of that. Here's something that's like a little bit more below the radar and a little bit more sinister, but is, uh, I think, important to report on. Riley Bechtel was CEO of the Bechtel Corporation in the early 2000s when a Bechtel subsidiary succeeded in taking control of Cochabamba's water supply. So Cochabamba is the third largest city in Bolivia. Mm-hmm. And this whole event led to a major... Do you, have you heard anything about this? Is no. this on your... It's It's kind of... I mean, I wouldn't expect you to. I didn't know about it, but it is a a historical moment uh, known as the Cochabamba water war. Mm. Um, and essentially, you know, they, they worked with the government and found a way to privatize the city's water supply. And then like promptly mm-hmm. <laughs> raised the, the rates drastically on the city. Nice. And you had people who were like struggling to afford to eat who were just suddenly getting gouged. Mm. And it led to riots that were repressed by government troops. A 17-year-old boy died, and about 100 people were wounded. And uh, a couple of months after doing this and all of the unrest, Bechtel was forced out of the country. So that's, you know, again, sinister. But, 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 But hold on one second. Get this. A year later, Bechtel filed a $25 million lawsuit against the Bolivian people (laughs) (laughs) for lost potential profits in this venture. And this obviously was a source of outrage and, you know, public petitions against the company. Public pressure ultimately forced him to drop the case, but... Um, and we can post details of how all of this played out. But I mean, for me, that was like unbelievable because Riley Bechtel is ultimately the guy behind that lawsuit. Yeah. At the end of the day, he's the CEO being like, yeah, we need to stick it to him. Okay. I have one more major revelation to offer about Riley Bechtel. And that is he was on the board of Theranos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Sweet. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> you know, the Theranos situation is out. Of, I mean, he's one of 12 guys, uh, or I guess like if, if you count Elizabeth Holmes, 11 men and Elizabeth Holmes. And I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about Theranos? I know everybody knows what Theranos is at this point, but. Um, I, I can tell you what my understanding, which is uh, probably. You know, just the, your average uh, lay understanding of what happened. Uh, she said that she could create a uh, blood testing technology uh, that was much quicker and much cheaper than the blood testing technology that currently exists, which requires a lot of blood instead of the little bit of blood that she was going to use and, uh, you know, and mailing samples and all kinds of, of stuff like that. Right. It was a self-contained small machine that could do all kinds of blood testing. And, uh, and it, it turned out that, 
uh, none of it was possible. She couldn't do any of it, but it's it's just like it's just like Bezos wanting to go to the moon. I mean, it, the thing about Theranos is that like it gets presented as like this huge scam, but really all it was was an idea that failed, right? Like uh, I, from my understanding, um, I would say like most Silicon Valley ventures uh, are, um, uh, you know, uh, are people invest in them uh, on the hope that a new technology uh, will become feasible and profitable um uh, you know like she oversold it uh no doubt but like you know it was kind of an end i I don't i'm not defending her i mean you know i think that she conned a lot of people but like i think that's just sort of the way things are done there's like an aspirational technology and you uh get people to uh you know if it seems semi-realistic you get people to invest in it so you're basically saying that like Silicon Valley operates on the same logic as the fire festival. Yes. And that's just, Ab- yeah, absolutely. Like we can do this. Let's be legends. <laughs> you know, like, Let's just yeah. do it. Let's do it <laughs> until people show yeah. up Yeah, and there's no, there's no place to sleep. I think now is maybe a good time to roll the roulette for next episode. What do you think yeah, about that? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, who, who you got? The first uh, billionaire is Michael Price, uh, MFP Investors founder and CEO. We got another hedge fund investor here. Um, Michael, Michael Price, Price, hedge fund okay. investor. Uh, so we'll have to find some novel angle on hedge funds. Our second billionaire is, oh shit, it came up with Leslie Alexander again. <laughs> oh my God, we our got our first, first repeat. repeat. Uh, that, means spin him again. that means we're a real podcast. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm really proud of us. That's really awesome. We it's going to start repeat. happening more and more frequently. Um, so the re the respin uh, we got oh a huge one Sumner Redstone uh, National Amusements Viacom Uh-oh. CBS Corporation MovieTickets.com um, he is a big deal in the billionaire world um, do you want the obscure hedge fund owner or do you want Sumner Redstone I feel like I did the last hedge fund guy so I should get Redstone all right I'll do the hedge fund guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I could no, do. I'll do it. Michael Price. All right. You get to do Sumner Redstone. This is, I mean, Redstone is by far the most famous one we've had so far. Um, yeah. Uh, I think the next closest must have been Jimmy Haslam, and that's because he owns a sports team, right? Like, um, um, but Sumner Redstone's a big one. Uh, surprisingly, I don't think he's that, that rich. Um, he's 92 years old. Wow. Uh, and uh, he's listed in my in my list as only four point five billion dollars. Um, uh, so uh, um, I would have guessed much more, but maybe that stat's wrong. Um, all right. Okay. Well, we got our work cut out for us, everybody. Thank you so much for listening again. Um, if you could take the time to spread the word about the podcast, like and subscribe, what have you, that would be great. 
Um, but even if you don't do that, you're still awesome. Thanks for being here with us. Any final words? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>